0: got them out, wow, wasn't done that, my eyes were not trained on that, they're the stealthy passer-outers, but First uh, Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 uh, to 20, as I turn there, I'll ask you to turn there uh, as well. Uh, the story that I'm going to choose to speak on and hopefully teach on with the Lord's help is the story of Hannah. And I think that's a very appropriate message because Hannah is one of the greatest mothers in the Old Testament. I think it would be safe to say that she's one of the top five easy moms uh, in that time period. And I also think it's uh, fitting because it's Mother's Day. Uh, Secondly, I really like the story of Hannah Because it doesn't just address mothers, and in fact, this is Mother's Day. It's a rather exclusive holiday, and my heart goes out to the woman that so desperately wants to be a mother, but for one reason or another, God has not allowed that for them yet. Maybe for because of miscarriages or infertility, or maybe they're going through a very timely and difficult process of adoption, and they're just hitting roadblock after roadblock, or maybe they're a single lady. And they so desperately want a family, but they just haven't been given a godly man yet. And the story of Hannah addresses that. It addresses mothers, it addresses women that so desperately desire to be moms, and of course it addresses men as well. So this morning as you're here, I hope you're anxiously anticipating what the Lord's going to teach you, because I promise you this, as we open up scripture, not because I'm anything great I have to say or an outline or an illustration that I may give you in the next half hour or so. I hope you're anxiously anticipating to hear from the Lord, not because he's here, he is here, but you'll hear from him because you're listening for what God has to say for you as we go through this great story that God's given us in 1 Samuel chapter 1. To get us started off, since it is Mother's Day, And it may surprise some of you, I was not the perfect child, and I'm going to guess you guys were not either. And you've probably given your mom some angst or some uh, reason to be uh, sanctified through being a mother. Uh, Just just some of the burdens that you may have caused your mom, and I'll go first. In fact, I want to show you this picture here. This is a picture of me when I was a child. And, and it's funny, this came out this week as, as I was thinking about being a mom, or as I was thinking about speaking on Mother's Day. And my mom gave this to my wife, and she's kind of been blackmailing me with it. And she's like, <laughs> if you don't do this, I'm going to let this picture out. So I'm getting out ahead of the blackmail. And I will, <laughs> some, some kind lady, I, well, I kind of like the picture. See, that's, that's motherhood, that, that's a kind mom. Because when I showed this picture of my daughter Caroline, who's seven, so get that she's in second grade, she's just laughing and laughing, and then she's—this is her joke, all by herself. She's like, "John, if you went bowling, you wouldn't need to bring a bowling ball." Ha 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 ha! And then, and then I could have sworn, like 12 years ago, when Missy and I got married, she made a vow that when everyone else turns against me, she would stick with me. But she said this after that little joke, and everyone's jovial but me. At that, I'm like, Caroline, go to your room. And so now it's me and Mrs. She's like, you must have been a smart kid (laughs) with a head that big. But uh, I just kind of think about that. And I think the burden of motherhood, having to birth that child. So that's the first burden. And then, in fact, i want to go to the, the, the first point, but don't write it down yet. Because that's just a natural burden. But as we go through life and we fast forward to middle school or junior high and high school, the the burdens get deeper and the angst that we cause our mothers is great. But they're there for us and they stick with us. And I want to look at the story of Hannah, who's a godly mother, and what we can learn from her. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, your Bibles, I hope, are open there because... All these verses are not going to be in your notes that I gave you, but if we start in the chapter nine of a book, and in Samuel's the ninth book of the Bible, you can't expect to just open it up and get the full story, all the context, so that you can just totally understand it. Uh, that's not possible. So what I want to do is just give you some background, some context, so as we go through this story, it'll make perfect sense to us. The story is about the Israelite people. And the Israelites, they've gone through the Exodus, they've left Egypt, and in fact, they spent a mess of years in the desert, and now they're in the Promised Land, the land that God had prepared for them. Moses has died, and they're being led by judges. And this is incredibly important that we get this. The Bible tells us in Judges seventeen six 6, that in, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a bad place to be. Every man making his own rules. No law, not following God's path. And that never works out. In fact, it kind of reminds me of of Johnny. He's three. And Johnny will just do whatever he wants, anytime he wants. And he does not care. He just doesn't care. Like an example, this just happened. Uh, Missy made this cake. And on Saturday mornings, we like to sleep in, which means like 6.30 or 7, because the kids are downstairs just immediately, and they're running around. And Caroline and Alana know, don't eat the cake. Just don't eat it. Johnny knows not to eat the cake, but he goes, he gets the whole pan, he goes, and I don't know if your kids had a spot where they thought there was this special heads of protection where no sin could be seen, and he's underneath our kitchen table, just pounding this, this, this whole thing of cake. And, of course, Caroline and Alana are like, Johnny's eating the cake! Johnny's e-. So we go down, and, and Johnny's under the table. He doesn't think we can see him. And we're like, Johnny, c- come out here. And he's like, like Johnny, c- come out. And, and, yeah, you got it. Just bathe them in, in, in the chocolate cake. And we're like, Johnny, we told you not to eat the cake. Yeah. Well, what do you think's going to happen? I'm going to get a spanking. What did you do wrong? I ate the cake. So we spin him around, and we're going to give him our, our tap on his honey. And he says this every time. He's like, not again. <laughs> it's like, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, did you think you'd get like a, re- here's another cake. And as you go through the story of, of the Israelites, and the reason I share that with you, when you read their story, it's the same thing. It's like b- the period of obedience, long periods of disobedience, and then God's judgment comes down on them. And they're in a period of God's judgment. They're doing whatever they want. And God's like, enough! And he sent these judges to judge them. And that's the time. That's so important we get that. Because that's the time Hannah's living in. God, ungodliness all around her. And what a story for mothers. She remains faithful to God no matter what. Her family situation a mess. All around her a mess. The, the, the judge at that time, Eli, a mess, and she remains godly. Well, what an encouragement to us. So as we go through the story of Hannah, and for the next half hour, we're going to go quickly through. It's like 26 verses. We'll start at verse 1 and just go verse, verse, verse. And I promise you, if you're willing to hear, let me change that. Because God's talking. If you're willing to listen, I promise you, you will not leave here discouraged you'll leave here encouraged. And I don't care if you're a man. I know it's Mother's Day. My heart was for mothers, but as I got into this, I'm like, there's not a soul here that will not be touched by the story of Hannah. So let's come before the Lord and truly ask that we listen or hear from him this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We're going to rest in the promise that if we intently listen and and just dwell down on your word, you're going to speak to us. It will not return void, your scripture says. Uh, give us ears that hear. Help us to allow ourselves to be changed, even in an area that we may not want to give over to you because it means loss of control, that thing. Uh, please help us to just have the courage uh, to come before your throne, face down, humbled, and to hear from you this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now we're at point number one, and it's on the screen. And I do a fill-in-the-blank thing because I know it's hard to pay attention for a half hour. It would be very difficult for me to do. And so I've given you a number of points to just draw us in so we can go through this together. And point number one that I'm going to kind of nail the hammer on is uh, God has a great plan for the mother wanting children but cannot have them. What an incredible burden it is to want something. And, of course, the story of Hannah is wanting to be a mom, but maybe the husband here that wants a new job or wants a promotion, wanting something so much that they're so fit, focused in on it. And in the story of Hannah, God did not forget Hannah and her infertility, and that's so important for us to remember. In fact, I'm going to kind of just now go through the story as it's told in 1 Samuel chapter 1, paraphrasing it, so you get the total story as we break it up section by section. Hannah was a godly woman, I already mentioned that, and she was living in an ungodly time. But God gave her this burden. It was very specific to her, and that was that she could not have children. And back then, that was even multiplied tenfold or a hundredfold. Right now, I... We have friends, Messi and I have friends, that are infertile. And and what a trial that is. An incredible trial. And back then, they would get judged on that. In fact, Hannah had a rival, Scripture says. and, And her rival was able to have children after child after child. And not only did she have a rival, but a rival would just mock her and rebuke her. Look at my children, and you have none. God must not be blessing you, and God is blessing me. And how evil that is. And Hannah's living through this. And she's just crying out to the Lord, why am I infertile? And she just comes before the Lord morning after morning after morning, giving the Lord her burden. But then something incredible happens around verse 10 and 11. Instead of just giving her burden to the Lord, which is hard enough to do, she leaves it there. And see, why is it so hard for us to leave our burden with the Lord? We can give it to him, and we say that this is my burden. It's just a knapsack filled with bricks, and how silly it would be for me to carry that around day after day. I can give it to the Lord, but I want to hover over it, make sure that the Lord does what I want with it. I want to massage it and focus down on it. What the challenge with burden is, is not just giving it to the Lord. The challenge with burden is is leaving it there, and here it is, waiting on him. Ultimately, trusting that God can handle your burden better than you can. And right there, that's the climax to the story. Once she does that, it's so incredible, because now the Lord's like, you're ready. You're ready, and she blesses him, blesses her with a child named Samuel. And I think that's so critically important because when we have burdens, God's just not giving us a burden just to be like, oh, you got a burden, how are you going to do? Or, you know, I wonder if John can handle his burden better than Donna can handle her. It's nothing like that. God gives us burdens because he's growing us. He's sanctifying us. He's taking us a place that we weren't before. And we see that so clearly in Hannah's life that God gives her this burden of being infertile, And Hannah just grows, and you see it as you read through this. She's growing, and she's getting intimate with the Lord. And finally, she gets to the place that the Lord wanted to bring her, and she says, Lord, you take it, because I can't handle it. And then as soon as she does that, as soon as she gets to the place where she's fully trusting in the Lord, it says she left there joyful, depending on your version, happy. My version, the Lord knew what I would understand. It's like she ate. I'm like, oh, I get that. And her total demeanor changed where I'm not focused down on my burden. I'm going to focus down on the Lord, and I'm going to wait on him. And I don't know about you that waiting on him kicks my butt every time. I hate waiting on the Lord. And what's that mean? That means I lack faith. Because why do I hate waiting on the Lord? It's so simple. Because then i got to trust him to handle the burden his way. If I hold that burden tight, if I wear that on my back, I can do whatever I want. It will crush me. It will kill me. It will hinder my relationships with you and with God himself. But at least I got it. If I give it to the Lord, I have to wait on him and trust on him. And that's so hard to do. She does that. She's blessed with her first son, Samuel. And this is is interesting, too. Just mom's here, Mother's Day. Think about this a second. And I think, obviously, fathers can relate to this. But I truly don't believe like moms. Imagine having your firstborn child, and Scripture's going to tell us as we go through it, she weaned him. So she's breastfeeding the baby. So at that time, she's probably had the baby incredibly close to her for four or five years in, in those, those times, maybe three, four, five. Her rival, by that time, had 10, 11, 12 children. If the Lord hadn't brought her, her, brought her to that place of sanctification, that place of growth, how easy it would be for her to go back on her promise. She promised to give Samuel to the Lord, wholly dedicate him to her. How easy it would have been for her to be like, you know what, God? That was my original intent. I made that vow. I made that, that Nazarene vow. I made that promise to you I was going to give Samuel to the Lord. But you know what? Why don't you take one of my rivals, Panea's children? She has ten. I have one. If you're like me, maybe you would rationalize and be like, well, I'll give you my third child, but I'm not giving you my first. But God grew her and grew her and grew her, and she was obedient to her vow. And what a lesson that is to us. So point number one, again, is God has a great plan for the mother wanting children but cannot have them, and if you're a father here, or if you're a man here, if you're here and you have children, you can. God has a great plan in your burden. That's the point there. Let's go through verse 1. In fact, verse 1 just gives us the name, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And verse 1 gives us the name of Hannah's husband, and it's Elkanah. Verse 1 also gives his lineage, and also where he's from, and I want to spend, now I want to go to verse 2, and I'll read you verse 2. And it starts off this way. It says, he had two wives. So we have and Hannah, and then we learn that Elkanah has two wives. And uh, I'm going to stop there for a second. Because any man would be out of his mind uh, to say this out loud, especially on Mother's Day. But my guess is there's someone here thinking it, and they're kind of like, well, sweet. (laughs) Why can't I live in Old Testament times? And I get two wives. And if you're thinking that, you're probably not doing a great job with the wife you have right now. (laughs) So that's just the first. But even more importantly, let's just spend a second on Genesis 2.24, because I think it'd be timely on Mother's Day to speak on family and God's plan for family. And I have in your notes, don't flip there, uh, because we're going to stay focused in First Samuel, but if you look at your notes under point number one, uh, the very next verse is Genesis 2.24, and I'm going to go through that. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And I have in your notes that word singular, wife singular, and they shall become one flesh. And that's God's plan. And I want to be an encouragement to you now. If you're going through a difficult time in your marriage, don't do your own thing. I did that. He got a second. His first wife, Hannah, was barren, and he took things into his own plan. And he said, well, I'm going to get a second wife. And she gave him children, but his life was a train wreck. You see that. And, in fact, all through Scripture, when man does his own plan, it never works out. You go through Scripture and you look at, you look at uh, King Solomon, you look at King David, and, and, and they did their own plan, and it ultimately led to their destruction. So every time in Scripture a man takes more than one wife, it's not God's best plan. God's just recording what Elk and I did, and then we're going to, as we go through the story, we're going to see the disaster that bling, brings I don't want to be insensitive. I'm not naive to the fact that there's divorce in the church. I'm not naive to the fact that there's remarriage in the church. And I understand that sometimes we do all that we can. And one, one party is just incredibly hard-hearted. Has just gone so far from the Lord, our, our hearts are rock. So my encouragement to us just right now is where you're at right now, Forget the past. The past, Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us God's got a plan for us. It's a future, and it's good. So where you at right now, let's do our best to live out God's plan, and that's one man, one woman, one lifetime. Uh, you say, well, that's really hard to do, John, and it is. In fact, it reminds me of a story I just heard this week. A couple's been married 60 years, 60 years. And unfortunately, the, the wife's sick, and she's on her bed, and they think she's going to die, and the husband's reminiscing, and he goes into the closet of his wife, and he finds a shoebox he's never seen before. And he takes the shoebox down, and he opens it up, and he sees two knitted dolls, two knitted, and clearly he knows his wife made them. And then all around the dolls and is just piles of money, just money, 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 stacks of money. So he goes to his wife, and he's like, honey, what are these two knitted dolls for? And she looks at him, and she smiles, a smile that only he understands, and tender. She goes, well, when we got married 60 years ago, my mother told me that instead of getting mad at you, don't get mad, I'm going to knit a doll. And, and of course, his chest, he's so proud. He's like, you've only been mad at me twice? And uh, she looks at him, just dumbfounded. And she goes, well, actually, there's $25,000 there. I sold all the other dolls for a dollar. <laughs> so so uh, any, anyone that tells you that marriage does not take effort is lying. Marriage takes incredible effort. God's way isn't the easy way. It's just the best way. So let's bear down and let's live out God's best. Verse 2, back to that. Now that we've answered the two wives question or the ten wives as we go through the Old Testament, that pops up a lot. And they're just choosing to do things their own way. It never works out. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 2, it says he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. I already covered Hannah more than likely was his first wife. Elk and I started to panic and he did things his own way and he Probably got his second wife so he could have heirs. And what a mess that created. Verse 3. <clears throat> now, this man Elkani would go up from his city <clears throat> yearly to worship in the sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinias, were priests to the Lord there. And I want to do just one last side trip. And we're going to look at this word Hophni and Phanias. The two sons of Eli, the priest. And if you would, please track with me here. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, flip one page over. So I want to hear the Bibles flipping, if that's your Bible. But we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to stay at verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Two sons and the men in here, and I'm going to ask you to participate. And I know this is a small group, but please don't leave me up here all by myself. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men and men in here uh, what kind of men were the sons of, of Eli the scripture says they were worthless and then there's more description it says they did not know the Lord flip with me men particularly to first Samuel chapter 3 verse 13 so one chapter over maybe one page and I don't want one man to not hear this God judged. Eli, men, look up here for a second. God judged Eli because of his inactiveness in his family. He, he, he didn't get away with His sons were doing evil things. And Scripture says, it says Eli did nothing. And God said, I'm going to rain judgment down on you. What a warning it is to every man in here with a child. Every man in here that wants to have a child. In fact, let's see exactly what God's word says. 1 Samuel 3.13, it says, For I have told him that I will judge. And this is God again. God speaking through Samuel. God himself, the creator of the universe, the one that knitted us together, the one that we're going to be accountable before when we die. He's speaking directly to Eli through the judge Samuel. He says, For I have told you, Eli, that I will judge Eli's house forever for the sins which he knew about, because his sons made themselves evil or vile, And then check this out, he did not restrain them. Are we engaged in our kids' lives? If we're not, be prepared to be held accountable for that. You will be judged. Now that is not saying we're responsible for our children's actions. They are their own souls. They are responsible to God for their actions. We are our own souls. We are responsible to God for our actions. And God commands us. In fact, he tells us if we don't, we're going to be judged. If we as parents, mothers and fathers, do not get engaged, involved, correcting, disciplining, bringing back to the best of our ability our children before the Lord. There's a heavy weight if not. And and I, I hear this. Again, uh, this isn't foreign to... I come home from work and I'm tired. And that's what I expect to hear. John, well, if I had your job, I could. But I come home and I'm tired. With love and hopefully this comes across res- with respect, Just, I would say get less tired. Because there's nothing more important than your children. Save some energy on the less important stuff and put it towards the important stuff because if you don't, Scripture doesn't leave us guessing. You're going to be judged. So fathers on Mother's Day, what a lesson to us. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm not going to read it, but it's in your notes. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 to 9. It tells us to bring up our children in the Lord, to teach them God's word. It's, it's, it's the number one thing we should be doing. Wear it on our foreheads. Paint it on our doorposts. Does our families even know the Word of God? Are our families talking to God through prayer and meditation and listening? I hope that is a reality. Verse 4 in 1 Samuel. Back to our story. And I'm going to do my best to stay tracked on the story of Hannah from here to our time has expired. When the day came, 1 Samuel chapter 1 now, verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to B- Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Aunt Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. There's many mysteries in the world. In fact, there's two or three that when I get to heaven, after just falling on my face before God, I'm going to be like, God, I do not understand this. Explain this to me. Uh, A mystery that I do understand, because he spells it out clearly, is it's the Lord who opens and closes a woman's womb. I think there's comfort in that. Uh, Point number two is this. God's plan may be different than our plan, but, but God's plan is always the best plan. Point number two, it's on the screen now. You can check it out. But Hannah desperately wanted a child... She's crying out to the Lord, God, can I give me a child. And we see that through the text. And God's answer continually is no, not at this time, not at this time. And I think this is made incredibly clear in the story of Lazarus. Just real quick, Martha and Mary love Jesus, and they know, in fact, in the story of Lazarus, it spells it out, John chapter 11, that Jesus loves Lazarus. And he gets word that Lazarus is sick, and he's sick unto death. Jesus, if you don't come, he will die. And those that are familiar with the story knows what Jesus does. He hears that, and he immediately gets up, and he runs, and he heals Lazarus. That's what we would like to hear or read, but that's not how the story goes. It says he heard that Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was going to die if he didn't come. It says Jesus waited. Like, what's he waiting for? In fact, the disciples are, Why are you waiting? He's sick. Right in it. you love Lazarus. He's sick. Let's go. And Jesus is like, No, we're going to wait. And then the inevitable happens Lazarus dies. So then they get word again Jesus, Lazarus is dead. Don't come. And the disciples are like, Why did you wait? And then we hear Jesus' answer, just loud and clear. He says, I'm glad Lazarus is dead so that your faith will increase. And then we know the rest. of So he goes then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And what a turning point in the disciples' lives. If you read that story and you look at the disciples pre-Lazarus and then look at the disciples' lives post-Lazarus, you see a total change in their attitude and their faith. God's plan so often is so much bigger than our plan. But because of that, God's plan is going to be different than our plan. And what angst that can cause. Hannah wanted a child now. And God's like, you're not ready. I need to grow you. I need if Hannah would have got her child now, I want you to hear this because the story makes no sense. If Hannah would have got that child, she's like, I want a child they know each other, and a month later, she takes her little test, and she finds out she's pregnant. Do you think she truly would have had the endurance, the growth, the sanctification to give her first child over to the Lord? I don't, and in fact, I know that. God doesn't give us trials just to punish us. God gives us trials to grow her, and she grew her and grew and grew her until she was ready to give Samuel over to the Lord. And then check this out. You say, well, how did that benefit Hannah? At the end of the story, the Bible says Samuel knew the Lord and lived for him. What greater thing could a mom hear? I mean, honestly. What other thing would make a mom happier? That's it. And if it's anything different than that, then you're messing your kids up. Because if you're teaching them about a job or money or car or house or love or whatever, that's not, that's just temporal. And the problem with temporal things is it's temporal. It doesn't last. What a beautiful thing for Hannah to hear. Her child loved the Lord and lived for Him. Verse 6 in the story as we go through it. And now we bring in the rival, the second wife. It says her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and could not eat. So just time after time, year after year, God, give me, give me a child. This isn't a month, this isn't two months. The longest I last in a child is like three days. Hannah's like year after year after year. Wanting and wanting and wanting. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to grow you, grow you, sanctify you, draw you closer to me. And to make matters worse, her rival is mocking her, rebuking her. Let's go to verse 8. Verse 8 is probably my favorite verse in this whole thing because it actually makes me feel good as a husband. It says, then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, and you're not going to find this on a Hallmark card. And he says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And then read that next thing on your own. I just, I mean, listen to what he says. He's like, am I not better to you than ten sons? Can you imagine, Hannah? Do you really want to know? Because I'll tell you. I've been wanting this child for years now, and you come to me with arrogant and blindness. I, I'm going to, I'll tell you. But before I'm too hard on Elk and I, I mean, how many men here know exactly what to do when their husband, when their wife's crying? We don't. I mean, we, we go up to her, and we're like, okay, tender touch, <laughs> tender touch, tender touch, and she's crying, and We're like, why are you crying? And she looks up and she's like, well, don't you know? (laughs) And now you're in like double trouble because you're like, she's crying and she thinks I'm supposed to know. Yeah, as long as I've been there. But uh, I, so we can't get too hard on Elk and I. But here's the lesson. Here's point number three. And this is for every husband in the room. Husbands, don't be blind and arrogant to your wife's needs. He obviously did not know his wife. He didn't. He's caught up in something else. His wife's going through this thing alone, and the husband's blind and arrogant to her. In fact, I thought of, uh, if you flip your notes over, I have five ways men are insensitive, and I'm just going to go through this quickly, and I believe all these are, are from Scripture, and the reason I did this is you'll notice I, have, I gave you as much scripture as I could fit on the page. Now, I changed the fonts, and it shrunk down. But all these scripture just hammers. And five ways men are insensitive is uncontrolled or unbridled desire. Uncontrolled or unbridled desire. And I'm gonna, these will be on the screen, so if you can't keep up, that's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it up here for a while. And you say, in fact, I showed my wife this outline last night. And she said, well, what do you mean by desire? Uncontrolled or unbridled desire. And this is what I mean here: is God made every man in here with incredible desires for his wife, for, for women. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing. And I love this term, unbridled. Like a horse with incredible power can do wonderful things. It can plow a field. It can transport people. But you take that bridle out of its mouth, it's going to go places it shouldn't go that could ultimately lead to its destruction. And a man's desire is not a bad thing. When it becomes unbridled, if it takes him towards lust or pornography or towards adultery, that's a place that will kill him. The Bible refers to those things with an arrow that will pierce the side. I, I believe it's a man's liver, it says. That, that, that's, a dead, that's a death wound. So desire is a way that men are insensitive to their wives. Here's a second one, unrestrained anger. Unrestrained anger. Just flying off the handle, losing control, using their strength or their stretched stature to intimidate. A third one, Unending criticism. Way Five ways, men are in unending criticism. Here's a real fast story that happened just two weeks ago that the Lord hammered me on. First he humiliated me, then he hammered. In my house, three kids. I, don't, I can't tell you the last time we tried to go to dinner or to church where all my kids lined up at the door. They do that well, but they never have both shoes. Never. One of them doesn't have a shoe. All of them don't have any shoes. One is two shoes, but they're not. So I snap at my wife. This is like two weeks ago. I'm like, Missy, why can't we get our kids to have shoes? And praise God, I have a godly wife because otherwise my mouth would be wired shut possibly married to someone here. She doesn't say a thing. And that was the death trap. She doesn't say anything. So I open up my mouth again. I'm like, well, I'm going to make sure they have shoes. And so for the next three days, and, and honest to goodness, I gave it my best shot. I bought a shoe organizer. I threatened. Do you think anything changed? Not a thing. Not, still In fact, after that experience where my wife just let me do my best, she's like, go for it. And she let me, uh, she let me rearrange the closet. She let me do everything. And what a joyous three days that was for her. <laughs> and... And at the end of that, honestly, here's here's the perspective, and maybe wives should do this more. Because now, if my kids, when they come in the next fifteen minutes, if they if they're not naked, I'm happy. (laughs) If if they're in their Sunday school class, uh, shoes alone, the fact that so criticism, isn't that easy to do? Well, why don't you do it this way? So easy, it just flows off the tongue. How prideful! I'm high and mighty. I'm better than you. Here's four. Don't talk. There's no interaction. Man comes home, wife says, how you doing? Good. How was work? Fine. And that's not not respecting your wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, are we living in an understanding way? And women so often want communication. Men so often just want to watch TV. And that's insensitive. Verse 5, lack of humility. Do you ever say you're sorry? Are you quick to apologize? Are you refused to admit anything's your fault? And you know, it's probably sad here. There may be a a wife here that's never heard their spouse, never heard their husband say, I'm sorry. Just never. That's not foreign. Humble yourself. I promise you 50% of the things that you fight over men are your problem. And that's on a good day. That's like on your best day. 50% 50% of it. So just say, I'm sorry. And of course, that flows both ways. Back to our story, and our time's fleeing, so I'm going to go very fast. Verse 9 says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking. Her husband just reprimands her, or, or tries to comfort her in a very foolish way. Hannah r- r- takes matters into her own hands. It says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shil- Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat uh, by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. Point number four is this. Write this down. Are we giving our burdens over to the Lord? Are we giving our burdens over to the Lord? It's one thing to talk to our friends, and coffee time is great, and speaking to our husbands and our wives and calling our moms and dads and letting them know our woes. That's fine. That's fine. But are we speaking to the Lord first? 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will you give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come across his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth, As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, but only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am not a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. And here's point number five. Being wronged is... Being wronged or carrying a burden is not a license to sin. How foolish Eli was to accuse her of being drunk. I mean, that's just foolishness. She was wronged, but she didn't lash out. She did not sin. She replied with, with respect, My Lord, I'm a woman oppressed by spirit. Point number six is this. Sometimes being faithful will cause some to misunderstand us. Clearly, Eli, in her faithfulness, misunderstood. And point number seven, or the conclusion. This is where the whole story comes down. This is it. And I'm going to close with it. Are we willing to leave our burdens with Christ and wait on him? There's not a person here, man, woman, mother, non-mother, that doesn't have a burden. And... uh, Mike just mentioned Tony Evans. Tony Evans said this, if you're not in a trial right now, watch out, because there's one right around the corner. So when that trial comes, when that burden comes into your life, are you going to carry it around and let it just hamper and enable your relationship with others and God? Are you going to give it? And then here's the hard part, leave it, and then wait on the Lord. That's what Hannah did. And she was blessed. The rest of the story is she had multiple other children. Samuel was used in a huge way in God's story. What an awesome, awesome reward for a godly woman. Let's stand and I'll close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every soul here. There's not a person here without a burden. I don't care if you're a man or woman. You can relate to this story of Hannah. We have burdens, we have trials, because God is sanctifying us, he's growing us, he's preparing us for something, for his story, which doesn't always match our selfish and narrow story. I pray for each person here, give them the courage to live out God's best plan for their lives. And I, I pray that they see the reward of that. I pray for the man here, help him not to be like Eli and become detached from his family, but help him to be engaged. I pray for the mother here, as she's trying to lead her family in a godly way, and other people just don't understand, and they have the wrong words to say. Help them to be godly wives and godly uh, leaders in their home. And I thank you for each mother here that is taking a stand for you and giving their burdens over to you and not lashing out at all the people that they could. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.